Welcome to the National Treasure Minute podcast, where we analyze, scrutinize, and celebrate the 2004 film National Treasure, one minute at a time. So put on your ocular device and discover a podcast beyond all imagining. I'm Matthew, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Charlie. Hello. And uh, today we're going to be looking at the second minute of National Treasure. Uh, But before we begin, I thought I'd just like to give a brief shout out to my wife, Olivia, who did the fantastic drawing in the previous episode. Um, And just to have a little housekeeping section, we might say, uh, what we're going to be doing is probably have drawings for the videos, if you want to watch on the YouTube channel, uh, every five episodes or so, um, just to give her, you know, some time to to really think about what she wants to draw and kind of get it exactly how she wants it. Um, And in the meantime, we're going to try and put out episodes as as frequently as as we can. So this minute begins with Benjamin Gates, uh, as still as a kid, sighing and then he walks on sort of towards the the bookshelf and he opens up a chair he steps on the chair he grabs a very ominous looking book there's no real symbols on it but it's you can just tell there's something serious about this book we see the grandfather who says you're not supposed to be up here and benjamin gates says oh i just wanted to know then uh the grandpa sort of reluctantly gives in and he begins telling the legend the the story it begins in 1832, and we end the minutes with uh, a shot of, we don't know it yet, but it's Thomas Gates in the middle of a storm, hurrying away towards uh, towards the White House. So um, my my first thought about this, about this you know, the opening shot, was um, I think that there's a shot of actually Ben Gates's shoe, and I think it's like a some sort of, I don't actually know what the, like a Vans or something like that. Yeah, it looked um, like Vans or something. Yeah, and it's um, it, it just reminded me, again, that this kid is in the 70s. During this minute, I really looked at his costume. You know, he's got mm-hmm. like this sort of jean jacket. Uh, his hair is really puffy. It's almost, you know, you can tell this kid's is, like, I think it's in the 70s is when it I begins. think it's supposed to be set in the 70s. Either the 70s or the 80s, but I'm going to go with the 70s. I think it actually says something in the beginning. We'll have to go back and watch the previous minute. Oh, we would have we we noticed that. if it, I think it... Maybe I'm just completely blind, but I feel like it didn't have any subtitle. Oh, wait. No, I think it did. I think it said Washington, D.C., something, something. Yeah, I think it said like 1972 yeah, yeah, or I 1976. Something yeah, like that. Yeah. Well, we'll have to we'll have to analyze and scrutinize it a little bit more closely. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so the, in this minute, the first thing that really caught my attention was the costume of Ben Gates. And so I know we talked a little bit in the last last episode about the characterization and all of that. But what what about this sort of first little shot or series of shots um, stood out to you? I think it's kind of cool that they used uh, the little step chair. Um, you know, it's a it's yeah, basically yeah. A, a chair that if you uh, if you fold it outwards, it becomes a step ladder. Apparently, that was um, designed originally by Benjamin Franklin. Although, if you read the Wikipedia article, which I of course did before. Um, before delivering this episode only the best research here folks yeah only the best research it, yeah we start out we start with wikipedia and m- most often we end with wikipedia too so it was supposedly designed by ben franklin they don't draw any attention to it i mean well they do they have a shot of it but they don't talk about it at all um they don't mention benjamin franklin or anything but you know it's kind of cool they just threw that in there it's a ben franklin chair i actually happen to own one my uh my mother bought it for me whenever i was very little because of all things i actually was at one point obsessed with Ben Franklin. I played him in a school play in the second grade. And uh, ever since then, 
yeah, ever since then, uh, you know, I had the little kite and the lightning bolt and everything. I had a whole costume. I think my um, my colonial hat was actually a pirate hat. But um, regardless, I played Ben Franklin and um, I became obsessed with him. This was, you know, second grade. You know, it's easy to get obsessed with things. So just a <laughs> neat little connection between myself and this movie once again. Uh, anything anything stood out to you about um, young Nick Cage going up the or Nick, young Ben Gates going up the stairs? So I wanted to go back to the Ben Franklin chair a little bit. I think it's really interesting that you're right. They they don't really draw attention to it. There isn't a little placard that says, you know, this is made by Ben right. Benjamin Franklin or anything like that. It's literally just there. And if you know the history, if you if you know a little bit about it, it does feel like you said in the last episode, like an Easter egg. Yeah, it sort of feels like you can look through the entire film and you can see these little tiny things um, that sort of all point towards uh, just just this absolute celebration of, of American history. Because whenever we first watched this movie, uh, we had the chair. It was it was it was in our, our mother's room, and uh, I, I remember when I saw it, I thought like, "Oh my God, that's I know that that's Ben Franklin's chair," and that is. It, it's that same sort of like wonder and like discovery and sort of looking for clues that the whole film is about. Right. And I think just the fact that that this is one of many examples that we're going to talk about of little tiny details. The director or the whole production crew really just loves American history. And so there's just so many little tiny things, you know, to the unobservant uh, viewer who doesn't spend their life making a podcast going minute by minute through a movie. Uh, they, they would just go right over their head. You know what I just thought of? Maybe it's actually implied to be Ben Franklin's actual chair. Because yeah. they, they established later on in the movie that the Gates family has the original Silence Do Good letters. And Silence Do Good letters, of course, being you know Ben Franklin's youthful correspondence with the Pennsylvania Gazette. So maybe it's implied that the Gates family has not only accumulated uh, Ben Franklin's letters, but also his original chair that was supposedly designed by him. I mean, you yeah, never know. It's they don't draw any attention to it, but the yeah, fact that this chair, yeah. you know, is in a, it's in the very beginning of the movie. His name is Ben Franklin Gates, and they they imply. I mean, they directly say later on that they they own his original letters. Maybe it's supposed to be his original chair. You never know. <laughs> Maybe you know, and and that's the other thing too is like the bookcase that he's sort of climbing up to, mm-hmm. to look at uh, i noticed that there were like like scrolls yeah. or something or maybe they were like 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 maps or something and so you get this feeling that um there's like so much actual history not just like a replication of something or or somebody who happens to collect like civil war action figures yeah. or something is like an actual primary source or something it's an actual document and so you're right i mean what if that actually has been been franklin's chair i mean whatever relationship they had with Ben Franklin, however tenuous that they got the letters. I mean, it, yeah, that's actually yeah, a really well, good. Yeah, I mean, they have it. They have his letters. Why not have his chair? Well, because it's in the same place right. in the house, right? It like it's in the same place in the house where they put all the other very important stuff. I mean, the actual letter that we'll get to, I guess, in the next episode. But the actual letter yeah. or so that's in that book. So presumably, this is where they keep all the, like the important. Mm-hmm. Oh, and by the way, stuff. this movie was originally four hours long, so there very well could have been. The, the papers that um, you're referring to very well could have been like, you know, he could have like brushed them aside and there might have been a shot that said silence, do good letters or something. You never know this because the original movie being four hours long, you know, um, I'm sure there was some important stuff they cut out. And honestly, they kind of throw it in randomly about halfway through the movie that the Gates family just kind of owns these letters. So you never know what kind of other stuff was supposed to be up here that he looks at, you know. 
So what did you think about, uh, so he gets the book, and what did you think about, like, the actual book itself? Well, okay, I, I wasn't impressed by the um, the book itself. It didn't have anything on it, you know, it was just kind of, like, ornate. Mm-hmm. But my, my question, really, about this book is, I don't really think that they ever explain what the book is. He never opens the book at any point in the movie. I mean, they. I mean, for the rest of this scene, he's just going to explain the history of the Gates family. I mean, the the family fortune, or the not the family, the the treasure. Um, so he's going to explain the history of the treasure, and then he's going to make him a knight, you know. And then they just move on. I don't think they ever <laughs> even return to this book. They don't even explain what's in it or why he was looking at it. All all we get is that you shouldn't have been looking at it. You know, that's that's all we get. Is you shouldn't have been yeah, looking at yeah. it. So who knows what's in there? Maybe maybe it's the 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 his ancestor's dissertation on the reality of the um, treasure. Yeah, no, I also thought the book was uh, a little bit less than impressive because um, at the time, you know, in, in the, the movie moves so, you know, too quickly for you to sort of dwell on it. But, but you are looking for, you're looking for some sort of symbol. You're looking for like the Freemason symbol. You're looking for the all-seeing eye. Um, but in, And maybe that's only on our second viewing because we know what the movie's about. But at the end of the day, you, you would think there should be some sort of consistency in like what this book uh, is about. Apparently, it starts off the whole you know, legend. I mean, it, it's it's Ben Gates is rebellious or Ben Gates doesn't really care about the rules. He'll bend the rules because he has this sort of uh, itch that he has to scratch, this sort of itch mm-hmm. for truth. And, you know, of course, that, that goes into his whole... I mean, the entire film where he just sort of breaks the rule, which is you don't steal the right. declaration. So, you know, you can kind of see that here where he's sort of thieving yeah. around, you know, trying to get a peek at this at this book. So that is, I think, some sort of narrative yeah. parallel. But I actually thought that later on in the movie, the book was going to mm-hmm. come back and yeah, it, never it never comes did. back. But yeah, so then we get the jump scare, the uh, first and I believe only jump scare of this entire movie. Wait, is there an, is there another jump scare in this movie? I feel like Abigail. I feel like Abigail gets scared at some point. Like she like turns around and sees some. Oh, oh yeah, it's whenever Riley. Riley yeah, Riley yes. puts her puts yes. his hand on his on her yes. shoulder. Yeah, so there is another jump scare, but we get the major jump scare of this movie, which is just a, a very old man um, appearing yes. behind young Nick Cage, which is on the same level as uh, I don't know Saw or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but uh, unlike Saw, this is played by a seasoned actor. Uh, Christopher Plummer, who I think actually passed away fairly recently. Um, Christopher Plummer, of course, you know, most famous for his role as uh, Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music. Uh, and whenever I saw him, I could not recognize him. You know, it's, yeah. there's a lot of actors and actresses where you can actually recognize them whenever they're, some of them that begin with as children, moving on into, I guess we might consider the prime of their life and then mm. moving on later. Like, Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, even Carrie Fisher, you know, you, you, you could see the same person. But with Christopher Plummer, uh, I, I tried my hardest to, like, get a feel for, like, like okay, I'm picturing Captain Von Trapp, and I'm aging him in my head. And I couldn't do that. I don't yeah. know if you could. No, I haven't seen The Sound of Music enough to know. What I have to do in my head is de-age um, Nicolas Cage's grandpa, and that's how I would get to <laughs> Captain Von Trapp. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Well, I really like the grandpa character. Um, he serves his purpose, and then he leaves, right? Yeah, exactly. Whenever he starts to begin the story, which is about halfway through the minute, um, or maybe like sort of 60% through the minute, he has this like almost like Santa Claus energy about him, mm-hmm. where where it's like, it, there's that one picture of Santa Claus where he like touches his nose, uh-huh. you know what I'm talking about? Yes. And it's like, yeah. it's like keep a secret or something yeah. like that. 
Uh, I don't actually know what this touching your nose means, but it's, Me it apparently means to like, keep a secret or something. And Christopher Plummer always has that same facade or visage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and so I just want to uh, ask you, like, what did you think about uh, the way the story begins? Well, okay, yeah, I, I was actually going to talk about this. So he he doesn't say it was a dark and stormy night, but he says. Um, it was a night much like this, or it was 1832 on a night much like this. And, you know, of course, it being dark and stormy outside, uh, he's implying that it's a dark and stormy night in 1832. And uh, I don't know, that's just like a, a very classic way of opening up a story. Um, I did research this on Wikipedia as well. Uh, we Again, we do all our research on Wikipedia, and we came to the realization that this particular line, this famous line, it was a dark and stormy night. I, I think the way I know it is a wrinkle in time, but the line actually originated in a uh, novel called Paul Clifford. And apparently, uh, in the literary scene, it's a fairly forgettable novel, except for its first line, which has become an example of basically like bad writing, like purple <laughs> prose, which is bad writing. Um, overly, overly sensational, overly descriptive yeah, writing. Yeah. You know, I don't really think it's a dark and stormy night is really like, you know, that descriptive. <laughs> uh, may, may, maybe it's just because it's a famous line, but it just, it honestly just sounds like a, a regular old um, descriptor. Well, I mean, it, it serves its purpose. And I think it really, it depends on what you're trying to do. I mean, if you're trying to write the next great American novel, maybe don't start off with it was yeah. a dark and stormy night, but I mean, this is not that. You know, this is a. It is a legend. It is a, almost like a fairy tale. And starting out with essentially like once upon a time, you know, it, it has that same function. And so I think it actually really works to sell uh-huh. what exactly is going to be told to Ben Gates here. Is that it's not really it, like he's not really presenting this as if it was history in the same way that you would think about. Mm-hmm. If I was to tell you some sort of narrative of the Revolutionary War, it's meant to be sort of caked yeah. in this language of fantasy or mythology. Yeah. So I think starting off that way is actually the best way of getting across to the audience that this is going to be a legend. And it's going to be such an important legend for this character. He's going to devote his entire life around it. So in much the same way, it begins like in, in Latin. There's, all, there's actually one word for this concept called olim, O-L-I-M, olim. And it, it just means once upon a time because it's just that common of a way of starting a story of a fairy tale they just have one word mm-hmm. to sort of capture that idea so yeah i think i think it serves its purpose and i think it was absolutely appropriate uh in in this in this situation yeah no i mean i i think so too it, it you know it de- it definitely does give the vibe of um you know it's it's not entirely non-fictional account of what's going on you know it implies that maybe some of it is not boasting but a tall tale mm-hmm. you know like um that there's there's an aspect of it that's not entirely academic yeah. you know it's not academic history it's this is a legend that's been passed down through his family I, I i don't think that any viewer in this movie would actually you know be misled by that and and believe that oh at the end the treasure is going to be entirely fictional we all know that he's going to find the treasure at the end right yeah you know yes it serves the function of making the whole story sound more like a legend but it does not necessarily imply that the story in universe is fictional because we we all know it's eventually going to turn out to be true exactly it sort of bridges that gap between something like johnny appleseed you know or paul bunyan which is obviously like it's not really meant to be taken seriously it's a legend but it's it's sort of understood implicitly like okay but this is false uh or this is you know it's just meant for children or the north pole I'm, I'm just joking. That was a, that was a How I Met Your Mother reference. I I, I didn't get that. I'm oh, there, there there's there's one episode where um, 
they're like all talking about um, things that are, you know, things that they, they used to think when they were little that they, they now believe is no longer true. Like one, somebody says like Bigfoot and um, one of the characters says, uh, oh, yeah, like the North Pole. I used to think the North Pole existed. Uh. <laughs> and they're like, they're like, oh, you know, the, the North Pole actually <laughs> like the Queen of England or something. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. So, so I would say is it sort of bridges. Um, it, it kind of bridges the gap between that, you know, like an obviously like a like a Easter Bunny like character, and then you know so, something that's like in history that has sort of acquired a legendary status, but is still actually like it's understood to be real, like uh, Taft being mm-hmm. stuck in a bathtub. You know that perhaps one of the most nauseating pieces of trivia in American history. Uh, because inevitably, whenever we get to the uh, Progressive Era, and I say, oh. You know, Taft is the next president. Someone raises their hand and they say, oh, did you know Taft was, uh, he was stuck in a bathtub? And I think, oh, wow, <laughs> thank you so much. I fa- I didn't know that. And then, so then they get, you know, they're happy. And then I actually, uh, by third yeah. hour, it got so annoying that I said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to get out a piece of paper and you're going to write down, was Taft stuck in a bathtub, true or false? And I'll give you five points for that. And we never have to talk about it again. Because I can say, <laughs> I taught you this per the, the, the curriculum. Yeah. There you go. Well, the last thing I wanted to talk about was uh, just the last shot of Thomas Gates or somebody we don't know who racing in a carriage. Um, and, and did you have any any thoughts about that? Besides him saying "yeah" because he's uh, <laughs> he's uh, driving the horses or whipping the horses, um, I don't really have any, the meat of that story. The meat of that uh, that particular episode in Nick Cage's grandpa's story. Here's some trivia about National Treasure. Um, his dad is, I think, John Adams Gates. Yes. And his his grandfather is Thomas Jefferson Gates. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I'll call him I'll call him Tom. Wait, wait is Tom because Tom is also the name of of Thomas Gates, the the carriage driver. Yes. Yes. We don't know what his name was, uh, like his middle name. Yeah. Okay. Well, regardless, uh, this, so this particular episode of Tom Gates's uh, legend has not yet unfolded. So I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna keep my thoughts on that for the next episode. Mm, mm. Very wise of you. Very wise. Well, that that about wraps it up for me. I said everything I wanted to say. Before we go, we now have a blog spot. You can find it at nationaltreasureminute.blogspot.com, and and you can listen to us on Spotify as well. Absolutely. Yep. Thanks for listening. <laughs>